I guess we had a relatively quiet day in the stock market today. I mean, the averages all managed to eke out gains on the day, although uh, the Dow spent a lot of the day in the red as well as in the green. But it ended up positive about 60 points. Uh, The uh, Nasdaq Russell 2000 also higher. Again, notably missing the rally are the financials. Uh, They were mostly negative on the day. They did have a rally Yesterday, as I mentioned on the podcast, after many of them making new lows for the year, taking out those key March lows, uh, but they did not participate in the rally today. The sector remains very, very weak, which is a negative sign that a lot of people are overlooking. But the real action today was in the metals, uh, particularly in silver, which had one of its best days in quite some time. It was up better than 70 cents uh, on the day um, you know, maybe even closer to 80 cents. Let me take a take a look at where it is now. Up about 76 cents, 16.63. That's up 78 cents. Just ticked up as I was looking at it on silver. So making a nice gain on gold that was only up about 13 and a half dollars. Uh, but 17.44 is where we closed. GLD, which is the largest gold ETF, hit a new 52-week high today, which means it's at a new seven-year high. Uh, I'm going to talk more about gold and the gold stocks a little bit later in the podcast. The gold stocks made new highs for the year. GDX, a new seven-year high. But before I I get into what's going on with gold and the gold stocks, I wanted to talk about some of the economic data that came out, not only today, but some data that I meant to discuss on yesterday's podcast, but I actually forgot about it. And that was the weekly jobless claims, which, you know, kind of used to be a yawn, Uh, But now it's a big number every week to find out just how many more Americans uh, lost their jobs. And remember, the prior week, it was 3,169,000 people that got the pink slips. And that was revised up to 3,176,000. But the most recent week, the consensus was for only 2.5 million Uh, more people to lose their jobs. Uh, And instead, the number came out at 2,981,000, which is almost half a million more than was expected. Although then later on in the day, I think the state of Connecticut came out and said, hey, our numbers were wrong. Uh, We exaggerated or we put an extra number. And so I think that the number they reported might have been about 200,000 higher. Uh, So if that's the case, then maybe we only lost uh, 2.5. 8 million jobs. So maybe it was only a 300,000 miss uh, as opposed to a half a million. But still, you know, a lot of Americans, more Americans than were expected, lost their job. And, you know, if a V-shaped recovery were just around the corner, right, if we were really getting ready to restart this economy and everything was going to be charging back, why would employers who had held on to their workers for this long Right now we're, you know, we're in May, right? I mean, we're supposed to be getting back to normal, right? If, you know, if they've held out this long, why are they still laying off so many workers? Clearly, employers are not sensing this huge recovery that's around the corner because if they did, they would be holding on to these workers. They wouldn't be letting them go now after they've kept them, you know, for these last couple of months. I mean, obviously, if they're laying them off now, 
They think that this is going to be a much more protracted decline, and therefore we're not going to get the back half of that V. Now, also yesterday, we got the important numbers on the Fed balance sheet and the money supply, which come out uh, after the close every Thursday. So they came out while I was doing yesterday's podcast, and I just forgot uh, to look at them. But the balance sheet actually took a pretty big jump, more than I was expecting. Uh, it went up $212 billion. Uh, that's a much bigger than the $65.5 billion increase that we had in the prior week. Remember, when the Fed was doing QE3, they were doing $80 billion a month. And here we did $212.8 billion last week. And so what that means is the total... Um, balance sheet now, the Fed balance sheet stands at $6,934,000,000,000, which means that we're probably already over $7 trillion. We'll get the official numbers next Thursday, but over $7 trillion. Remember, the highest the balance sheet got following the end of QE3 was $4.5 trillion. We're barely into QE4, and now we're at $7 trillion. And we are going much, much higher. And of course, in conjunction with the uh, big jump in the balance sheet comes the money supply numbers. Not quite as horrible as the prior week when the money supply jumped by $332.8 billion in one week. Uh, but last week, we got another $196.8 billion of freshly created money uh, just being conjured into existence by the monetary magicians at the Federal Reserve. So this is inflation that is being generated on an unprecedented scale. I mean, it's we're doing the same thing that we did uh, following the 2008 financial crisis, just on a much greater scale. And of course, we're doing it in an economy that's far more heavily indebted and in much worse shape structurally and economically than it was back then. You know, even before the Fed did uh, QE and, and, and ZERP, right? I was warning about inflation. I was out there saying this is going to lead to high inflation, maybe hyperinflation. That's when I was out there saying we're going to have $5,000 gold, right? We're going to have a dollar crisis. And when none of those forecasts panned out, right? That's when everybody started you know, really criticizing me or making fun of me. You know, even Paul Krugman, he called me out on his column. You see, Peter Schiff was worrying about inflation and he couldn't have been more wrong. Look, we have zero inflation. CPI is really low. The dollar has gone up. Look, there, there's no inflation. I was right in that the Fed was creating inflation. What happened was that inflation just manifested itself in ways that people weren't worried because it showed up in stock prices and real estate prices and, and bond prices and things like that. It wasn't showing up as heavily in consumer prices. And then when the Fed was able to convince everybody that it could normalize interest rates and shrink its balance sheet, and then when you had Europe starting to follow in our footsteps, where all of a sudden, while we're supposedly going to be winding down our stimulus, they're starting theirs, right? They were behind us and they, they went down to zero and they started doing QE after we did. And so then it looked like, you know, we were the cleanest shirt in the hamper. And so people started to have faith in the dollar. And so we didn't see the big increase in consumer prices that I was warning about, 
right? Well, we're going to see it now. We're going to see it much worse than what we would have seen had it started back in 2011, 2012, 2013. Because not only are we going to have to deal with the consequences of all the money the Fed is printing right now, right? We're going to have to deal with the consequences of all the money that it printed earlier that temporarily went into financial assets before it migrates into consumer goods. So we're going to have the delayed impact of that inflation. I mean, there is a lag between the Fed creating the inflation, printing the money, and when that money ultimately bids up consumer prices. The lag is not normally a decade. This was an extremely long lag, which lulled so many people into a false sense of confidence and made so many people confident that I was wrong, right? And that they were right and that there was nothing to worry about. Well, now, not only are we going to get the payback from the inflation that we've held at bay all these years, but now we're going to get a much more immediate uh, reaction. The lag between all the money the Fed is printing now and the impact it's going to have on consumer prices is going to be far shorter. I mean, it's not immediate. There is a lag, but it's not going to be a decade. It's going to be much, much shorter than that. So we're going to see a much more immediate impact and it's going to be much greater. So what's going to happen now is the inflation that I warned about, at least you know the way it's going to manifest itself in consumer prices, it's actually going to be much worse now than it would have been had it happened back then. The dollar is going to end up falling much further now than it would have fallen had it started to decline a decade ago. The impact on the bond market, the ultimate rise in long-term interest rates is going to be much bigger. And gold is going much higher. I used to be calling for $5,000 gold. We're going to go much higher than $5,000. I mean, $10,000 at a minimum and probably higher than that. So all the things that I was warning about, all that stuff's going to happen. It's going to happen in spades, right? And so the people that thought I was wrong and were, you know, lulled into this false sense of complacency, you know, they're in for a rude awakening. You know, one such guy I saw on CNBC today, this guy, Ron Insana, uh, who used to be, you know, one of their anchors, and then he started a hedge fund, and that didn't work out. And oh, he, I, he, he's still like a contributor, so he comes on uh, quite often. And today he was saying that there's nothing to worry about as far as all the budget deficits, all the money printing. That it's okay because it's never going to produce a crisis. Because after all, look at how big the deficits already are. Look at how much money we're already printing. And according to Ron and Sana, if this was a problem, we would already see it, right? If big deficits really caused a weak dollar or rising interest rates, it would have already happened. And so therefore, since we've run such big deficits and we've printed so much money and we haven't seen the inflation, we haven't seen the weakness in the dollar, we haven't seen a rise in long-term interest rates, then we're never going to which is a very dangerous assumption to make. Just because we've gotten away with it this long doesn't mean we're going to get away with it forever. In fact, it's exactly when you start to think that you can get away with it forever because at one point, a lot of people were worried about the debt. Now, hardly anybody is worried about it. That is ironically when it's going to become a problem. When everybody was worried about it, you know, we got away with it. But now that we got away with it for so long and that nobody's worried about it, it's a huge problem. And I think we're very, very close to a major collapse of the dollar, a major breakout in the price of gold, a breakdown in the bond market. And it is going to happen overnight. It's going to sneak up on people when they least expect it. So it's not like you could just say, oh, you know, 
we, it hasn't happened yet. It's not a crisis until it becomes a crisis. And then it becomes a crisis very, very quickly, right? And, and if you're not prepared for that crisis in advance, when all of a sudden it just surprises everybody. Now, of course, when it happens, right, that's not going to surprise me. It's like, it's about finally, what well, took so long? But I'm sure to the extent that anyone in the mainstream media mentions me, they'll just say, ah, well, you know, Peter Schiff's a stop clock because he's been saying this was going to happen for 10 years and now it finally happened. Well, yeah, I've been warning about it for a long time. That doesn't make me a stop clock. That makes me right. The stop clocks are the people who have been saying nothing to worry about for the past 10 years. Everything is fine. And then all of a sudden it blows up in their faces and they're not prepared for it and they get wiped out and I'm prepared for it. I make a lot of money. So I wasn't a stop clock. I was just early and I was repeating the correct message over and over again, hoping that people would heed it. Right? The stop clocks are the perma bulls who are still going on television telling everybody there's nothing to worry about. I mean, what's going to happen when there is a crisis? Are any of these guys going to lose their credibility? Are they going to call them out for being stop clocks and perma bulls? Probably not. Right? They're probably not going to seek me out, but it doesn't matter right? because you know, I, I have my podcast and so people can continue uh, to tune in uh, to hear the truth. Now, I want to go into the, some of the economic data that came out today as well. You know, we got the retail sales numbers, which, of course, you know, everybody was expecting that the retail sales numbers were going to be bad. And, of course, uh, those expectations were not only met, but exceeded. They were looking for a 11.2% drop, which would be worse than the drop we had in March, which actually was originally reported as minus 8.7. And they tweaked that up a little bit to minus 8.3. Uh, but it was supposed to be minus 11.2 on top of that uh, in, in uh, April. And instead, we got minus 16.4% decline in retail sales. And included in that number, there was an 8% rise in online sales. So obviously, your people are stuck at home, and so they're, they're buying more stuff online. So online sales went up. But... Overall sales went way down. And I'm sure that number is being exaggerated, meaning it would be worse if, you know, a lot of those retail sales are people stocking up on groceries. It's a lot of supermarket stuff, right? People shopping in advance because they're afraid that the stuff won't be available. Uh, So if it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for people hoarding groceries and items like that, I'm sure that we would have seen a much bigger decline than 16.4%. In fact, when you took autos out, the decline was 17.2%. So I'm not really sure how many people were buying new cars, but apparently there were a few people. But I just read, you know, that uh, was it Hertz or Avis or one of these big rental car co- uh, companies has canceled all their, their car buys. I mean, the auto bubble is another one that has popped and we're going to see a major collapse in car sales. That's why stock prices of GM and Ford continuously go down right now. Those companies are in a lot of trouble. I'm sure they're going to get bailed out again uh, by the government. Uh, But retail sales, less automobiles and gas uh, still down 16.2%. You know, a lot of people aren't even buying gas, obviously, because they're not driving back and forth to work. And if they buy it, it's been pretty cheap. Although we did, you know, we had a nice rise in oil prices today. We're back up to about $30 a barrel. Uh, That's still very cheap. It's not quite as cheap as it was. But I do have a feeling uh, that once we turn around, we're going to head much higher uh, in, in, in these prices, particularly 
uh, when the dollar cracks. Meanwhile, the people who were smart enough to write those uh, negative uh, price puts on oil or whoever was dumb enough to buy a negative uh, put option on oil, obviously those options look like they're going to expire worthless. And the people who sold them had, had a good trade. Uh, but the bottom line is these numbers are weaker than expected. That is generally what happens. They expect weak numbers and the numbers exceed the expectations by being even weaker and the markets don't care. I mean, the Empire State Manufacturing was a bit of an exception today. Last month, it was minus 78.2. They were looking for minus 65 and we got minus 48.5. So in that uh, number, it wasn't quite as bad, but it was still horrific. In fact, industrial production, we got the worst uh, decline in history for industrial production uh, down 11.2%. We've never seen that. They've been following this index for over 100 years. And this is the biggest drop that we've seen. A manufacturing down 13.7%. They were looking for a decline of 114 That's on top of the 6.3% drop in March. So down 13.7%. And capacity utilization, not quite as weak as they were expecting, but the weakest ever. This is the lowest number in history, 649 in capacity utilization down from 72.7 in the prior month, which was still a low number. Uh, the, the estimate was 64.1. So all of this economic data that has been coming out is consistent with an economy that's even weaker than, than everybody thinks. And meanwhile, everybody has already priced in a huge recovery into the market. I guess if you look at where the stock market is trading, it's priced as if the market's going to come roaring back when none of the indications that we see so far would indicate that's the case. Although people are still, you know, buying uh, the COVID portfolios. Look at Netflix today up hitting another all-time record high. You know, that is the trade, right? People are buying Netflix or they're buying Amazon because they're thinking these are the COVID-19 portfolios, right? As everybody is sheltering at home, uh, they're not going to the theater. They're watching Netflix. They're not going to the mall. They're shopping on Amazon or they're not even going to the grocery store. They're getting their groceries there. They're doing all their shopping on Amazon. So people are hiding out in, in these stocks. I mean, what they should be doing, right? The real COVID portfolio are the gold stocks. I mean, come on. I mean, when I hear people coming on uh, you know, television with ideas. And once in a while, there are some guys that talk about gold stocks. But I mean, it, it's barely mentioned. I mean, it's like, kind of like an afterthought when, when they mention a gold stock, right? Uh, but when they talk about these portfolio managers, you know, what are you doing? You know, what stocks are you recommending? These are the stocks. I mean, other than people trying to bottom pick uh, the banks, which I think is a, a big mistake, the, the stocks that are going up uh, you know, these, uh, you know, the, the, the COVID stocks, but the gold stocks are going up. Gold stocks are making new highs. They're making new seven-year highs. The big stocks, the junior mining stocks haven't even made a new 52-week high because they haven't even taken out the high from a week or two ago. They're close. But then we're still a long way away from taking out the high from four years ago, from 2016. So the juniors are a great, great buy. I mean, the seniors are still a great buy, but the juniors... 
uh, even have more opportunity, which is why I'm, you know, one of the reasons I'm telling people to get into my gold fund, because we have a very good portfolio of these smaller companies that I think have really yet to make a big move. And I think that move is coming. So before it happens, you want to get invested in my fund, you know, provided that you're willing to risk losing money if I'm wrong. Uh, but if I'm right, the upside potential, the amount of money that you stand to gain in these stocks dwarfs the money that you're going to lose if I'm wrong. So for people who are willing uh, to have riskier investments, I think this is a great time to be buying it. But the point is, why aren't more people figuring this out? I mean, come on, what is going on now? The Fed is printing all this money. We're running massive deficits. We have even bigger deficits to come, right? We've got the, the printing presses on autopilot. It's going to keep on going. In fact, for the first time this week, I think it might have even been yesterday, the Federal Reserve finally started buying the corporate bond ETFs. They were talking about doing it. They hadn't actually done it. Now they're doing it. And I think initially they talked about it and that was enough to cause prices to rise because people started to anticipating the Fed buying. So the Fed was kind of talking the market up without actually having to step up and do the buying. But apparently that wasn't enough. And now they're actually buying uh, corporate bonds, uh, which you know they shouldn't even be doing. They have no legal authority to do this. This is all illegal. Nobody even wants to challenge it. You know, I mentioned before, when the Federal Reserve Act was first passed, the Federal Reserve was not allowed to buy treasuries even. They were only allowed to buy you know, commercial paper and they had to have gold backing. So when World War I started, that's when uh, Congress wanted to uh, get the Fed to help finance the war. So in order to do that, they had to amend the Federal Reserve Act so that the Federal Reserve could buy U.S. Treasuries. They didn't just start buying them and say, well, we're going to do it. They waited for Congress to give them the authority, and then they did it. Well, they're not waiting for any such authority now. They're just acting on their own. I mean, first of all, on their own, they decided that if they could buy treasuries, they could buy any uh, debt instrument guaranteed by the U.S. Treasury, which I think was a stretch. I don't really think that they had the authority to do that, uh, but you can see a way that they can potentially claim it. It was never like legally challenged. But hey, you know, we can buy maybe mortgage-backed securities if they're guaranteed by the U.S. government. They might think, hey, that's the same thing as buying an actual obligation of the U.S. government. I mean, I can see how you can stretch that logic. But what you can't stretch is the authority to buy corporate bonds. They got nothing to do with the U.S. government. There's no U.S. government guarantee. And they're not even just buying high credit quality. They're buying junk bonds. They're buying municipal bonds, the debt of states, or municipalities. What does that have to do with the federal government? Where did the Federal Reserve get the legal authority to do what it's doing? It doesn't have it. It just grabbed it. But nobody wants to challenge them because Congress is happy that the Fed is doing this, right? Because it's artificially propping up the stock market that they don't want to collapse. It's artificially propping up the bond market and now in specifically the corporate bond market. Uh, but if they really want the Federal Reserve to do this, they should follow the law and pass an amendment to the act. And Trump should sign that, you know, and actually give uh, the Federal Reserve the authority to do what they're doing. Because right now they lack the legal authority to do it. And of course, I don't think they should have the authority to do this because this is a bad thing. In fact, the only reason they got the authority to buy treasuries was because we were at, during a war. We were in World War I. Had they proposed from the onset that the Federal Reserve 
uh, would be able to buy treasuries, I don't think they would have got the votes in Congress to pass the act. But once they got the camel's nose under the tent, then during a war, they were able to con the public into accepting it. That's what's happening now. We have a war on COVID. But now we're just not even giving Congress the authority. They're just taking it. But, you know, also, and I've mentioned this, but I have a lot of new listeners, so I want to point it out again. But there were a lot of congressmen who were very leery in 1917 about giving the Federal Reserve the power to buy treasuries. They were worried that the Treasury would abuse that and they would go into more debt, right? Because once you give the central bank the authority to buy government debt, you make it easier for the government to go into debt and to borrow money. So they, they passed the debt ceiling. That's where the debt ceiling came from. It was enacted at the same time that we allowed the Federal Reserve to buy uh, U.S. Treasuries. And, and, and so the idea was, okay, we're going to let the Federal Reserve buy Treasuries, but to make sure that the, the Treasury doesn't go too deeply into debt, we're going to Im- impose a debt ceiling. See, the problem with that debt ceiling was that they kept raising it every time they got near it. So it wasn't a real ceiling. It was a fraud. And now we suspended the ceiling indefinitely. So the sky's the limit uh, when it comes to, to debt. But they're just going to keep on printing, uh, um, you know, like it's going out of style. And, 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 you know, you got people who are not even concerned about it. But clearly, this is bullish for gold. I mean, can't people figure this out? Right? I mean, obviously, the price of gold is going up. That should be a little bit of a clue. Uh, but, you know, I think a lot of people don't even realize that this is the beginning of a big rise. They think it's the end of something. A lot of people out there think that gold is just going up because of this COVID crisis and that as soon as the crisis is over, it's going to come plunging back down. That's why a lot of people are probably reluctant to buy the gold stocks because they just assume that the gold price won't be at these levels long enough for the gold companies to really profit from it. What's going to happen is we're going to get a big, big move one day. you know, of course, we're going to have even bigger moves later on. But initially, we'll have one big move. Silver will go up two bucks, three bucks, maybe five bucks. It's going to have a big move. And then these gold stocks are going to surge. And then when that happens, right, when gold really soars through 2000, then when people think, okay, gold's going to pull back, where's it going to pull back to? 1700? So what? These gold companies are going to make a ton of money at $1,700 gold because they're not even priced for that now. They're priced for much lower gold prices because that's what investors expect. They don't care where the price of gold is now. They don't believe it's sustainable. Well, when they realize it is sustainable, then they're going to be paying up for these stocks. I mean, because this is what they should be buying. Forget about Netflix. Forget about Amazon. I mean, any idiot can just think about buying those and plenty of idiots are. What very few people are doing is buying these gold stocks. How do I know that? Because nobody is talking about it. You know, you keep seeing all these guys come on CNBC and they go, you know, I'm bullish because everybody else is bearish. You know, everybody is negative on the market and, and, and therefore I'm a contrarian and I'm, I'm bullish. Yeah, but everybody has that view. I mean, if everybody thinks that uh, everybody else is bearish and that's why they're bullish. It's like the Yogi Bear, you know, that the restaurants are, 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 are too crowded. So no, nobody goes there anymore or whatever, or whatever his saying was, right? It just doesn't make sense that everybody can't think everybody else is bearish. Yet in reality, nobody is actually bearish. I mean, there's a few people that are bearish, right? It's not like nobody, 
But from my perspective, you have a lot more bulls than bears. That's why the market is so close to the highs. That's why the NASDAQ is positive on the year. You can't tell me that everybody is bearish when the NASDAQ is positive on the year, when these overvalued tech stocks are even more expensive now than they were before the year began. How can everybody be bearish? How could you think being bullish is a contrarian trade? It's not at all. What would be a contrarian trade would be buying these gold stocks. But it shouldn't be contrarian. It should be obvious. I mean, look at all this money printing. Look at all these deficits. How can we not have inflation? How can we not have a, 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 a problem here? It's because the Fed got away with it. You see, there were more people, and I know because I was there, back in 2008 and nine. I wasn't the only one. There were other people that were concerned about QE, that were concerned about the deficits. That's why gold got up to 1900, right? That's why, you know, the dollar was falling, right? People were worried. But then when it looked like they were wrong to worry, that the guys like Paul Krugman were right, that there was nothing to worry about, that it was fine, and they believed Bernanke that, hey, we're going to exit this, you know, strategy. We're going to normalize rates. We're going to shrink the balance sheet. When uh, that happened, now the people who were worried in 2008, 9, 10, they're not worried anymore. I mean, there's a few of us like me who hung in there, who stuck it out, who have been warning about it the whole time, but more and more people uh, drank the Kool-Aid. So they still can't get it. Now, I think that this is going to happen. I mean, the gold stocks have already doubled, more than doubled off the March lows. Let's see them double again from here because they wouldn't even be expensive if they doubled again. I think they will relatively soon. Maybe once they double again and the price of gold is over $2,000 an ounce, then you'll start to see more people, you know, figure out that the COVID portfolio is a bunch of gold stocks, that the stocks that are going to be the biggest winners based on this crisis are not Netflix, right? That was already an expensive stock to begin with. And yes, more people are going to stay at home, but Netflix has a lot of competition now. It's not the only streaming service that's out there. And a lot of their customers are not going to have as much money to even pay for these services. So I think those companies are going to have a lot of problems. I think Amazon is going to have a lot of problems because the dollar is going to crash and prices of goods are going to go up. And so their customers are not going to be able to buy as many goods. You know, it's funny. I think it was yesterday. Donald Trump put out on tweet on Twitter, I think. And he was wondering, you know, what would happen if America just completely severed ties with China, right? We're so pissed off at the Chinese. They're cheating. They infected us with COVID-19. You know, we're just going to completely sever all ties with China. Why don't we just do that? And he is wondering uh, what the result of that would be. Well, let me clear up the confusion for a lot of people who just don't get it, right? <laughs> it would be a major catastrophe in the short run for the United States. Why? because China is supplying us with goods that without the Chinese, we wouldn't have, or we'd have to buy them at a higher price from somebody else. And having to pay higher prices is worse than getting lower prices. Now, of course, we could try to make the goods ourselves, but how are we going to do that? With what factories? With what infrastructure? With what trained workforce? We can't do it. And we need China now more than ever before because China also loans us a bunch of money. They loan the U.S. Treasury money by buying treasuries, but they also own, own, loan Americans money, buying mortgages, 
buying a corporate debt. They're one of our biggest lenders. And now we're borrowing more money than ever before, which means we need the Chinese more than ever before. So if we completely cut ties with China, we can't get any of their products and we can't borrow any of their savings. What happens here? It's a collapse. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands. And are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. We, we, you know, uh, prices go way up. The economy implodes. Interest rates go up. Chinese actually will be better off, right? They'll be able to invest their savings domestically instead of squandering them by loaning them to us. And they'll still produce all the goods that they're producing now. They'll just consume them themselves or they'll trade them with other nations that actually have goods to exchange, right? They, they, they win. I mean, even Kyle Bass was on. I watched one CNBC today. He was a bright guy. And I agree with Kyle on a lot of things, but I just totally disagree with him when it comes to his understanding of the game that America and the China have been playing. I mean, he thinks that we hold all the cards. He's wrong. The Chinese have the cards. They got the Trump card. They can play it whenever they want. I mean, they've been reluctant to do it. Uh, but so if we cut, if we sever uh, ties with China, it's a disaster. But you know what? Those ties are going to get severed eventually. And it's going to be the Chinese that do it, not us. Because they're going to realize they're going to get tired of throwing good money after bad. We, we are basically challenging the world because the fact that they haven't dumped the dollar, that is what is emboldening all of these stimulus plans one after another. There's no limit to how much we can spend. And since we've basically said that, see, we're scaring the world, right? In the past, we at least pretended that we were going to do something about the debt at some point. Right. And, you know, but now we're not even pretending anymore. We're actually saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how big the debt is. Doesn't matter how much we borrow. We never have to pay it back. We're never going to suffer a consequence. This is when our creditors have to be, oh, my God, we got to get out of this. Right. I mean, that's why I said when when we pretended to be worried about the debt, that's when our creditors, you know, had some sense of security because they thought that we were going to do something about it. But now that we're not pretending anymore, that we're telling everybody we couldn't care less, we have no worries, we're going to borrow more and more and more, that's when everybody has to really be worried. And this is where we're getting into a crisis. So people need to have an inflation hedge. They need to have a hedge against the falling dollar now more than ever before. And oh, I got to point out that one of those hedges is not Bitcoin. And you know, every time I tweet, about gold, right? The next thing I know is the tweet is inundated with comments. Bitcoin, 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 Bitcoin's better than gold. What about Bitcoin, right? Everybody thinks that Bitcoin is the best inflation hedge and it's better than gold. And it's not. And by the way, look, Bitcoin almost got above 10,000 again last night. And as I'm recording this, it's back below 9,300. Uh, you know, so Bitcoin had a pretty big down day today. 
uh, as gold and gold stocks were really shining brightly. Uh, some of that uh, luster uh, came off of Bitcoin. But I don't look at Bitcoin as an inflation hedge at all. Now, I know there are people who think it is, but they're wrong. Now, if a bunch of people who think it's an inflation hedge buy it, then the price could go up for a while, but it's not a hedge against inflation. And let me explain why. So the reason that gold is a hedge against inflation is when, when you have inflation, right, and you're printing money, the value of money is going down, right? You're creating more of it. And so the result of that is that the price of goods goes up, right? All goods move up. Now, gold is a good, right? It's a commodity, right? That became money, but it's also a good. And it has a value relative to other goods. So it has a relative price, right? Because, you know, gold is used in jewelry, but it's used in industry. There's all sorts of real world uses for gold, right? That's why it's so valuable. Now, you can relate the price of gold to the price of any other good, right? Because if you, if you take money out of the equation and you go back to barter, that's when people would exchange one good for another good. And in a barter economy, you have to have some value uh, between goods. How much you know, is wheat worth in terms of oil, right? Because if you're trading wheat for oil, you have to have an idea of the relative value between those two commodities. Now, when gold comes in, you basically now re relate all those commodities instead of to each other, you relate them to gold. So gold has a relative price to all the other goods and services that you buy with it because it is a good in and of itself. So it has a value that can relate to the value of other goods or other services. And, and that value could go back for thousands of years uh, for a lot of different goods and services. Obviously, some goods are new and didn't exist a thousand years ago, but there are plenty of goods that humans have been consuming for a thousand years. And you can go back and you can see uh, relative prices. So you can know if something is cheap or if something is expensive. So now if the government is creating inflation and the price of goods are rising, well, so is the price of gold. You know, gold could maintain its relative relationship with other goods, or it could actually go up in value relative to other goods. But that's your inflation hedge. Because when you're holding your savings in gold, you have a good that will go up in price when the dollar falls, when paper money loses value. So you, it's an inflation hedge because you've hedged the cost of other goods by owning a good that is going to go up. You're getting out of paper, right, into a real good whose price will go up and its relative purchasing power will be maintained, right? How, many, how much oil you can buy with an ounce of gold, how much wheat you can buy with an ounce of gold, that will be maintained no matter how much uh, value the paper dollar loses, right? That you can have hyperinflation and you can need millions of dollars to buy a loaf of bread, but it's not going to change how much gold you need to buy that loaf of bread. Your ability to buy bread will be preserved if you have gold. You could lose your ability to buy bread if all you have is paper. You may not be able to buy any bread with that paper. So that's why gold is an inflation hedge. Now, is Bitcoin an inflation hedge? No. Because Bitcoin is not a good, right? Bitcoin doesn't have any real world use cases. You can't do anything with a Bitcoin the way you can do something with gold. Yes, you could give it to somebody else. You can exchange it. But absent the exchange, it has no real world use application as a good It's in and of itself, right? And so since it's not a good, 
it doesn't have a value relative to other goods. It doesn't have any kind of price that we can discern. I mean, there's no history of what is a Bitcoin worth relative to any other commodity. I mean, we have 10 years of price action, but what does that mean? And in fact, if you just look at Bitcoin 10 years ago when the value was tiny compared to where it was now, if you want to compare the price of Bitcoin to any other good, Bitcoin looks extremely expensive. Bitcoin looks like it's way overvalued relative to any other good. How could it possibly be an inflation hedge? If you're worried about the price of goods going up, why would you want to store your purchasing power in Bitcoin? You wouldn't. It is not an inflation hedge because it's got to be a good in and of itself whose relative value could be maintained uh, versus other goods. Now, yes, as I said earlier, people could speculate that it's an inflation hedge. And if a lot of people want to bet that it's an inflation hedge, in the short run, those bets can drive the price higher. But in the long run, it won't be an inflation hedge. The price is going to collapse. Let me just see if I, I know I've, I've touched on the points that I wanted to make. And then I'm going to go to the Q&A from the week. Let me just take a quick look here. Yeah, I think that's about it. So let me turn my attention. I got a list here of the questions that people have been asking. Again, if you don't know where these questions are coming from, they're coming from the live chat. And I see somebody is, you know, just paid uh, 10 pounds, I guess, to um, ask me a question. Uh, and so I don't get to the questions immediately, but we, we keep, not all the questions, you know, but I get to a number of these questions and I've been doing it on, uh, on Fridays. By the way, we are going to be upping, I'm getting some new equipment. Remember, my goal here, I was going to build an entire studio and I still intend to do that, but everything has been delayed. All the construction has been delayed uh, due to COVID. But eventually, I'm going to have really good lighting, sound. I mean, it's going to be top notch. But I have been uh, picking up some things to, to, to bridge me over, uh, to have kind of a makeshift uh, operation going on here in Puerto Rico. Although I'm going to be going up to Connecticut sometime soon. I'm not really sure. I, I, you know, maybe, maybe at the end of the month uh, or early part of June, I'll be heading back up to, uh, up to Connecticut for a couple of months. Uh, before coming back down here. But anyway, so let me get to the questions. First one, some say MMT money with 0% rates will find its way into stocks, causing stocks to go up. Bonds and gold will crash. Please comment. MMT, modern monetary theory. Again, it's not modern. It's not really a theory because we know it doesn't work. And I suppose it relates to money in some way. Uh, But look, Yes, if we have enough inflation, prices of stocks will go up. Not bond prices, though. Bonds are going to get killed with with inflation. But stocks could go up. Look, the Zimbabwe stock market soared when they had hyperinflation in Zimbabwe dollars, but it crashed in terms of gold. And that's what's going to happen. Gold is not going to crash. The stock market is going to crash priced in gold. It may not crash priced in dollars because the dollar will crash more than stocks, which is why I'm not advocating that people stay short. I'd rather short the dollar by being long gold. I don't want to fight the Fed. I want to bet on the Fed. I want to bet the Fed keeps printing, right? That's what they're doing. They say, don't fight the Fed. I'm not. That's why I'm buying gold, right? And if you're not buying gold, you are fighting the Fed and you should be buying gold stocks. Because then you're on the Fed's team. The Fed's team is create inflation, destroy the value of the dollar. Now, they, they're willing to bet that they can, they can turn from the brink. 
that they can have just enough inflation, uh, but be able to turn it off when they want. And there's no way they're going to do that. It's going to be like Frankenstein and his monster. See, they, the, the Fed thinks it can control the monster. It can't. The monster is going to turn on the Fed. But unfortunately, it's the entire country uh, that's going to get killed. Anyway, next question is from Therese. That last one was Ryan Peterson. Uh, this one is from Therese. Uh, average millennial with 50 to 100K in a 401k, should we see the volatility in the market as a gift and continue to dollar cost average into the market? Um, if we have 20 to 30 years, uh, no. Uh, I definitely don't think that you should follow the advice of uh, the mainstream and just dollar cost average into uh, into this market. You know, um, that's the standard uh, pitch that just be a long-term investor, buy and hold. And I think the U.S. stock market is very overvalued and I wouldn't buy it, I wouldn't hold it. But I do think that that advice applies to other stocks in other parts of the world. I think there are a lot of stocks that you could buy if you are a long-term investor and even a short-term investor right now. I think there's a lot of stocks that look good, but I wouldn't uh, attribute that to the U.S. I think just buying, let's say the S&P 500 is gonna be a big, big mistake because I think it's overvalued. I think it's going to go down a lot. You're going to be in a big hole. And even if it doesn't go down, it's only because the dollar went down more. And so your portfolio will not keep pace with the actual increase in the cost of living. Next question is from Ben Fernandez. Peter, speaking of Norway, what are your thoughts on Americans relocating Norway? It's one of my favorite places to visit, but high taxes are a drawback. Yeah, you know, I've only been to Norway once uh, and it was a long time ago. Um, so I, you know, I don't really know too much. I mean, look, if you like a lot of, uh, sunshine, I know, you know, at parts of the year, it's very sunny, but other parts of the year, it's very dark. Uh, you're very high up. I can get pretty cold in, in, in Norway. Look, um, there, there are high taxes there, but you know, some of the taxes are lower, uh, than the taxes are here. You know, it just depends. Uh, and, and I think that, the, the likelihood that taxes go down in Norway in the future is a lot better than the likelihood that they go down here. Uh, so it, it's probably a better place to be than the U.S., uh, given the, the, uh, the severity uh, of the problems that we're facing that I don't think the Norwegians are, are facing. Uh, and, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that it's probably not a bad move if you like that lifestyle and that climate or that environment. Uh, I know that the Norwegians, I mean, they all, they all speak English pretty well. Even if you don't speak Norwegian, you could probably make it over there. But it's probably a good thing if you do. Uh, but look, you know, there are a lot of places in the world that people could live uh, that I think are going to be in much better shape. Look, we are in very, very uh, treacherous time period here where we are on the cusp of a major economic catastrophe where capitalism has never had such a bad reputation and socialism has never been held in, in such high regard by so many people. So it's, it's, you know, it's a dangerous time to be a democracy. And these are things that risks that people need to be cognizant of uh, that many people just, uh, just dismissed. Um, Peter, since the physical metal is hard to get and paper metal is cheap, does it make sense to buy silver derivatives and ask for delivery? Look, you know, if you're going to buy metal uh, for delivery, just, you know, just buy it. 
Now, a 100-ounce bar, right? The only silver that you can get delivered is a 100-ounce bar. And I don't think the premiums on a 100-ounce bar are that high. You know, it's the, the smaller denominations that are commanding the bigger premiums. But you can check, call up Shift Gold and find out. And then you can, you know, you can find out what it costs. I've never actually done it. And I do think it's going to happen at some point. But yes, you can buy a contract. And I think a full contract is 5,000 ounces of silver. Um, but you can buy the contract and maybe you can get a mini if you don't want that much, right? But you can buy a contract and then you can uh, exercise it and put in a notice that you want delivery and then you have to pay for, in, pay for it in full, right? When you buy a futures contract, you don't have to put up the face value. You have to put up a, a minimum margin requirement. But then if you give notice that you want delivery, you obviously have to pay the full cost. And then you have to pay some other costs probably for shipping or other ancillary costs, which you need to check on and see what those costs are. And then compare that to the cost of just buying the bar right now and, and taking delivery. And you can find out if you could actually save money uh, by getting delivery. But the risk that you take, obviously, in the futures contract is what if you try to get delivery and then they can't deliver, right? What if that crisis happens before you get a chance to get delivery? Now, maybe it won't. Maybe you'll be able to do it. I mean, so far, anybody who's wanted delivery, they've got it. But I believe at some point, it's going to be a problem. And you don't want to be the guy trying to take delivery when it is a problem. If you just go and actually buy the physical now, then you know you're going to get it. So, you know, is it worth it? I mean, maybe you could save a few bucks, but you're taking a chance that the, the, the silver may not actually be there. And all you get back is your paper instead of your silver. Uh, next question is from Brad Larson. Um, and this is a $100 question. So this is a biggie. Hello, Peter. Where do you see the value of your gold fund going if and when gold explodes? I know you won't have an exact prediction. Just your personal projection would be appreciated. Also, do you see the market crashing in the near future? Thank you, Brad. Uh, yeah, my gold fund, EPGFX. Look, yeah, I don't have a specific price target on the fund. But obviously, you know, I think the price is going much, much higher. And, you know, because there's no real bottom to the dollar, right? You know, they, they could keep on printing it, right? It doesn't have any intrinsic value. So it can keep losing value. Then there's no ceiling on the dollar price of gold. And therefore, there's also no ceiling on the dollar price of gold stocks. In fact, there's no ceiling really on the dollar price of any stocks, uh, but in particular, gold stocks. So look, I don't know how much higher it's going to go. I just think it's going to increase by multiples of its current price. And I believe that gold stocks will go up more than traditional stocks in any environment, even if we have massive inflation, which lifts all boats and all stock prices go up, which means they're not really going up. It's just the money is going down. And so it just looks like, you know, if you're going backwards 20 miles an hour and you're standing next to something else that's going backwards by 30 miles an hour, it looks like you're going forwards, but you're not. You're just going backwards more slowly. And that's what's going to happen. People are going to be losing wealth more slowly in stocks then people are losing it in cash. But regardless, I think you're going to see the biggest move in gold stocks. So I think real people should just be piling in to my fund if it's suitable for you. I mean, obviously, there's a risk that I'm wrong, 
But, you know, you, you always take a risk that you're wrong, no matter what you do. I mean, all the investments that are being heralded as being safe, I don't think they're safe at all. I mean, you've got a lot of financial advisors that will tell people, oh, you, you can't take risks now. You're too old. You better put your money in muni bonds and treasuries and, you know, CDs and things like that. I think they're taking a tremendous risk. I think the riskiest place you can have your money is cash. I think what the traditional you know, Wall Street firm regards as being safe, I think it's highly risky. So you know, Wall Street thinks you're playing it safe in treasuries. I think you're gambling. Now, maybe I'm right. I mean, if they're right, then okay. But there's still a risk that I'm right. I mean, I've been right before. It's not impossible that I could be right. So if I am and they're wrong, there is tremendous risk in holding what is considered a safe, no-risk investment, right? So whatever you choose to do, you have to decide which risks you want to expose yourselves to and which risks you want to mitigate. I think the risks to be mitigated are inflation and a weak dollar. And the way you guard against those risks is by selling those types of uh, investments that most people consider safe, which are actually very risky, and getting into things that I consider to have less risk, uh, which would be gold or foreign stocks that pay good dividends. They may have more volatility against the dollar if you want to just define risk as volatility relative to the dollar. But if the dollar itself is what you believe is risky, then yes, the dollar is never going to fluctuate relative to itself. So from that respect, there's no risk in losing dollars if you hold dollars. But the risk is that the dollar loses its purchasing power. So what good are your dollars if you can't buy anything? I would argue they're no good, right? Preserving dollars that have no value means you preserve nothing. So if you want to preserve your purchasing power, you got to get out of the dollar and you got to look elsewhere. Next question is from Gerardo Soto. Peter, you mentioned that the unemployment rate is under pressure in the labor statistics is, is underrepresented. What do you think the actual number is and where do you think it will be in the depths of the depression? Yeah, the numbers are, I mean, look at the U6 number, which is more accurate than the headline number, which includes people who are involuntarily working part-time and it includes some of the discouraged workers. It, it includes discouraged workers who have been discouraged for less than a year. So they're still considered unemployed, right? You're not looking for work uh, because you don't think you can find a job, right? They're not considered unemployed in the, in the official number, but they're in the U6 number. But after they've been discouraged for more than a year, they're not even there. So if you counted the unemployment rate the way we used to count it, maybe in, the, in as late as the 80s even, right? Which is anybody who has not looking for work because they don't think they can find a job. They would be looking if they thought one was out there, but they're so discouraged that even though they're, they're not looking for a job, even though they want one because they know they can't find one. If you counted all those guys as being unemployed, and if you counted people who had a part-time job, but who wanted full-time employment, but couldn't find it. And so they were just content with a part-time job to tide them over but they were actually looking for a full-time job while they were accepting the part-time employment to kind of bridge the gap, right? If you counted all those people, you know, the unemployment rate is probably well over 10%. I mean, actually it's already over 10%. Now it's 16, 20%. So maybe it's 30 or 40% if we 
accurately. Remember, Donald Trump, when he was running for president, he kept saying that the real rate of unemployment was 20% then 30%. And, you know, as the election got closer and closer, the real unemployment rate got higher and higher. I think eventually it got up to over 40%. Now, of course, Trump was exaggerating. But the point that he was making was that the actual rate of unemployment was far higher than the official rate. And that's the case now. I just don't know exactly what that rate is, but I just know there's a lot more unemployed people uh, than the government claims. I mean, all the government statistics, I think, are, are, are inaccurate. I think they're, it, it, prices are rising, consumer prices are rising faster than the CPI shows. I think GDP is growing more slowly than the government numbers. I mean, I think the government has a vested interest in fudging these numbers. And it's not a conspiracy that they lie about them. I just think the methodology for creating them has purposely been designed so that uh, the good things get overstated and the bad things get understated. I mean, that's just reality. Next question is from Drasek. How is Germany, Europe going to develop through the crisis? Do you think Germany will have its own currency again? Well, you know, will the Deutschmark uh, reappear? I don't know. It's certainly a possibility. It's also a possibility that the euro zone could contract and maybe uh, some countries leave the euro, that Germany stays on the euro, but for, you know maybe Italy isn't a part of it. Maybe Spain isn't a part of it. Maybe even France isn't a part of it. Maybe you have a smaller number of currencies sharing a common currency and that currency becomes the euro. I mean, I don't know. There is a lot of ways that this thing can shake out because you have some tremendous moral hazards embedded in, in that system. But I still think that the dollar is going to have its day of reckoning before the euro. And, you know, I think that the moral hazard now in the United States is actually worse than it is in the eurozone, in that you now have all these states that are looking towards the federal government and the Federal Reserve to monetize their debts, to buy their bonds, Right. And so I think we're now going to have competition among the states to see who could be the most profligate because everybody wants to push off the cost of their profligacy on another state. And of course, the incentives to being conservative or thrifty are now being destroyed because if you are thrifty and some other state isn't, well, you're not going to get the benefit of, of, of being frugal. You're going to be punished. So you might as well be reckless, too. So I think that, uh, we really uh, created a bigger problem than the Eurozone has uh, for the dollar. Um, and, you know, a lot of people think about, well, will, will Europe break apart? Well, the United States, we have 50 states. Could we break apart? Yeah. I mean, it happened once. We, then we fought a civil war. Uh, but it could happen again. I mean, in the aftermath of this crisis, right? And you have a lot of states that have very different political philosophies than other states. Uh, well, we want to remain as one country with one, one size fits all socialism that's going to be applied throughout 50 states. Or might some of these states want out, right? I mean, it could easily happen. I could easily see secession movements in certain states as things really get bad, as the inflation gets bad and uh, you know, the, then you have uh, all kinds of government edicts like price controls and capital controls and things that are really going to be making life more and more miserable. Uh, people are going to want out. States are going to want out. So I, I'm more concerned about the dollar than the euro, but ultimately I'm concerned about both. 
Next question is from Ben Fernandez. Peter, love the show. What are your thoughts on buying put options on gold miners in case the prices crash again? Look, uh, I think the crash is over for gold stocks. I mean, the initial decline was a head fake. And I was saying that on this podcast. Go back and look at what I was saying. Listen to what I was saying in March as they were throwing out these stocks. The absolute low was the morning after the Fed cut rates to zero and launched QE, right? Uh, Or they took that big rate cut to zero. The gold stocks gapped down and that was the washout bottom. That was the blow off bottom. All the suckers got cleaned out. And and so that's over. Now, does that mean that we're not gonna get a dip? No, there could be a dip at any moment. I don't think the dip is big enough to warrant buying put options. I really don't. I think that the dips are buying opportunities Uh, And I don't think you have to worry about hedging yourself if you're in the gold stocks. I think the gold stocks are your hedge. Now, if you're telling me that you have a portfolio that consists 100% of gold stocks and you don't have anything else, maybe, maybe you might want to hedge it a little bit, uh, you know, and you can also do that by writing some calls against a smaller portion of your portfolio, take in some income and, you know, pre-sell some of the stocks at higher prices and if they go down, you keep the call premiums and now you could use that money to maybe uh, average down or something. So depending on how much gold you have, uh, but if gold stocks are your hedge against a broader portfolio, I don't think you need to hedge your hedge. And again, I don't think there's a lot of downside risk. I think we've already washed that out, right? There's going to be dips, but they're not going to be anywhere near the magnitude of the decline that we had before. Uh, and, and as I've said, while I do think that stocks in general, especially the U.S. stock market, could easily take out the March lows. I think the lows are in for the gold stocks. I don't think we're going to revisit those lows, let alone take them out. We could have a small pullback. I wouldn't even wait for it. You know, as I said, just keep buying, right? If you don't have any gold stocks, any silver stocks, don't wait for a pullback. Just buy because you might not get a pullback. You know, if you get a pullback, you can always buy a little more. If you already own a bunch of gold stocks, then wait for a pullback to buy more. If you're comfortable with the stocks that you have, then sit tight. But if you want to add, I think, you know, I, I, you know, it's good to add on a pullback, but you got to be quick. And what happens is you start to pull back and you get greedy. You want a bigger pullback. And the next thing you know it, the stocks that you were hoping to pull back make new highs. Uh, I don't think they're going to give them away anymore. They gave them away when everybody was afraid. And I said at the time that it was a gift horse, that they were throwing these stocks out and it was a great buying opportunity. And, and so far, it looks like I was right. But I still think that it's a great time to buy these stocks. Is it as great a time as it was then? No, right? Because you don't have all that fear. You don't have all those margin calls artificially suppressing the price. But not a lot of people were willing to step up, right? Other people were afraid to buy as other people were dumping. Uh, but now the fear has subsided and you're having some cooler heads. But we still haven't had a rush in. We haven't had any kind of you know, crazy buying. I mean, we haven't had a blow off. This is a very steady, orderly rally where gold and gold stocks are climbing a wall of worry. It is a great bull market. In fact, I love it because it's giving me an opportunity to get more people invested in gold and gold stocks, right? The last thing I want is for the price to just explode because how? what about the people that haven't opened up accounts yet? Right. I mean, I want to get as many people into this boat, into this lifeboat before the Titanic sinks. I know the ship is going to sink 
And there's still a lot of people that are dancing around that merrily along have no idea what's about to happen. I want to wake those people up and get them off of that Titanic and get them into my lifeboat, get them into these gold stocks, get them into the silver stocks. So this slow and steady grind higher is allowing a lot of people uh, to get on board, a lot more people. So if you're one of those people, get on board, take your chance. Don't press your luck because one of these days, the price is going to take off. And it's much better to get positioned before that day than after. Uh, next question, what's the best way to invest in gold ETFs like GLD or futures? Look, you know, I think in retirement accounts, that's when it makes more sense to have uh, the ETFs. But, you know, you can have gold IRAs at Shift Gold. Uh, if you want to have the physical and you don't want to uh, have uh, an ETF, but, you know, a lot of times you still have a third-party custodian. So, you know, you can have a, a, an ETF. But everybody should own some physical gold. You should have some gold stored outside the country. We have a great program at Europe Pacific Capital uh, with the Perth Mint in Australia to store gold and silver. Same thing with gold money. They have a lot of vaults you can choose from all around the world. So it's good to spread your gold around. Don't have it all in, in one place, you know. One thing I don't recommend as an inflation hedge or a way to buy gold is numismatics, rare coins. I mean, they're specialized. I mean, you know, for collectors. And yeah, if you buy the right coins at the right time. Uh, but if you just want an inflation hedge, buy bullion. You don't want to become a coin collector, right? Because when you're buying a, a rare coin where the price of the coin is two or three times the value of the gold that's in the coin, you're not making an investment in gold. It's like if you're buying an, an antique uh, chair, you're not investing in wood. Even if the chair is made of wood, it doesn't matter. You're, you're buying the antique chair, not the value of the wood. I mean, the wood could be very inexpensive. And that's the same thing with a collectible coin. But unfortunately, you know, a lot of people are pressured into these coins. There's a lot of firms out there that do the old bait and switch where they advertise bullion. But the minute you call up, they, they, they push you into rare coins, numismatics, uh, and they do it in IRAs. It's a real disaster uh, because uh, people end up dramatically overpaying. You know, if you buy a, a coin where the price you pay is twice the value of the gold, uh, the gold has to double in value just to sell your coin at what you paid for it. And then, you know, there's commissions involved, high markups, uh, all kinds of costs. I mean, just avoid this. Any any gold dealer you're talking to, the minute they start to push you into rare coins or numismatics or try to scare you, oh, the government's going to confiscate gold like they did in 1933, uh, or they talk about how rare coins can do really well, they can, just not the ones that they're pushing on you. The crap that they're pushing is, isn't really rare at all. They pretend it is. But yeah, if you're an expert and you go into the auction and you can buy some of these coins right, uh, there could be a place in a portfolio uh, for collecting rare coins, just like there's a place for collecting baseball cards or stamps or any other uh, rare objects. But if you're worried about inflation and you want to hedge, you don't buy collectibles. Because, you know, if the economy gets really bad, a lot of times people have to sell their collections to raise the cash, right? A lot of people have collections, also have big stock portfolios. They have businesses that could fail. Now they need money. And if there's not a lot of collectors, you know, these prices could collapse. I'm thinking there's going to be a big drop in the art market. A lot of people, that's been part of the bubble. Look at, look at rare art. Uh, I think you could see some big price declines there. People think that they're inflation hedges. Uh, we could see a big drop in the art market. Uh, so you don't want to be 
a, a coin collector. You want to be a gold and silver investor. Uh, and so stay clear of uh, uh, numismatics. Uh, next question. What's my opinion on the trucking industry? Well, I, you know, in the near term, it's going to have trouble because obviously the economy is in recession. And so less stuff is going to be transported around. I mean, long term, I think truck trucking is going to benefit from uh, automation. I think you're going to have ultimately um, autonomous trucks. Uh, so you're not going to have drivers, which is going to make trucking far more efficient. Uh, the trucks will be able to operate 24-7. They'll be able to go faster uh, with fewer accidents. So that means uh, it's better for everybody because fewer uh, truck-related accidents uh, and products will be able to be distributed more efficiently and more cheaply. So I think there's going to be obviously a big shakeout in the trucking industry as we move from drivers to autonomous vehicles. I don't know how long uh, that process is going to take, uh, but I do think when the dollar crashes, uh, and good prices go up, including energy prices, uh, I think that industry is, is, is going to suffer. A lot of American industries are going to suffer uh, in the short run, and I think that is one of them. Next question, Peter. What if you were the U.S. president? Which steps would you take to fix our economy? Thanks. Um, look, I mean, I don't have enough time uh, on this podcast to get into that. Again, you know, you could read my book, The Real Crash, uh, How to Save, you know, America's Coming Bankruptcy, How to Save Yourself and Your Country, where I go over a lot of the things that I would do. Uh, but basically, it's not really what I would do, but what I would undo. Uh, you know, we need to shrink government dramatically. We need to abolish agencies and departments, slash government spending, unleash free market capitalism, uh, get rid of a lot of these entitlements and welfare programs. Uh, then we can cut taxes and relieve the economy of the burden of paying for all this government spending. Uh, we need to re repeal a lot of these rules and regulations that are undermining the economy and making it less productive and increasing the cost of going into business and staying in business and employing people and all these rules and regulations that limit individual rights in favor of some kind of group privilege. So there's a whole laundry list of laws I would repeal and agencies and departments I would abolish and programs that I would end, uh, including reforming the Fed, making it truly independent, uh, restoring its original mission is probably the easiest thing to do, going back on a gold standard, uh, stuff like that. You know, there, there, I have a long list of things that would work. It, none of my solutions would be painless, uh, but they would work and they would show uh, results relatively soon. I mean, we'd have a sharp decline but then we would have a very strong, a very vibrant uh, recovery. And I think we actually could boom. Donald Trump pretends that he created the strongest economy in the history of the world. If America actually did what I think it should do, we would have the strongest economy in the history of the world. Because if you combine 19th century capitalism with 21st century technology, which has never been done before, but if you have the level of freedom that we had in the 19th century with all the advancements in technology that have happened since then that we enjoy in the 21st century, we would have an economy that would boom like uh, nothing before. Okay, next question. Um, assuming there is a range of human intelligence and that technology is replacing low-skilled jobs with high-skilled jobs, how can capitalism support 
the increasing pool of people that don't meet the intelligence check. Well, look, obviously there's always going to be people that are going to be less intelligent than average people. And these people are being negatively impacted by laws like minimum wage. But the beauty of capitalism is that those are the people who are helped the most, right? Because they can rely on the intelligence of other people, right? They can ride on other people's coattails. I mean, people who are not very smart, if they, it was, it was, if they were on their own, they wouldn't do very well. But once you introduce them into a free market where other people can do things that intellectually they're incapable of, but other people can provide employment opportunities and provide them with tools that increase their productivity. So despite their lack of intelligence, and of course, you know, there, there could be a lot of ways that people can be successful and not necessarily be that intelligent. They can have street smarts. Uh, they, they can have other skills uh, that can make them successful. It's not, you know, there are some very smart people, highly intelligent people that don't really succeed. In fact, you know, in many cases, it's the C students that end up doing the best. They end up making more money than the A students. You know, they end up starting small businesses. They go into trades. I mean, they do a lot of things. So intelligence is not the be all and the end all. I mean, yes, it certainly does help. And all things being equal, I'd rather have more intelligence than less intelligence. Uh, but sometimes what you lack in intelligence, you can make up in, in, in other characteristics. I mean, you could be a very intelligent person who's lazy and doesn't get anything done. Or you could be a highly motivated person who doesn't have as much intelligence, but as much harder working uh, and, and therefore can achieve a lot more. The, the, just the biggest obstacle, though, is government. You know, so the, the, the lower your intelligence, the harder it is for you to overcome these government obstacles. Uh, and so uh, you, what you really want is freedom. Uh, you want freedom uh, to have uh, a, 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 a vibrant economy that will create opportunities that will allow you uh, to benefit from intelligence that you may not have. Oh, but the other question is, what about uh, the labor, right, that is replacing the jobs, right? Isn't it bad for the, the low-skilled, low-intelligent people because we end up with um, robots and machines that can throw them out of work? And this is a big fiction. They are actually the primary beneficiaries. See, all of these labor-saving devices, the end result is that consumer goods become less expensive. Now, who benefits when consumer goods become less expensive? Poor people, people that have lower, fewer skills or less intelligence. Very rich people, it doesn't matter, right? If you're a billionaire, does it matter to you whether something costs $500 or $200? No, you can buy as much of it as you want. It doesn't matter, right? You think, you know, um, uh, Zuckerberg, does, does it matter to him, you know, what the price of, of an iPhone is? Does he have to check the price? I mean, he's got so much money. It's not going to make his life better if the price goes down, right? I mean, because he's not even going to know. The price could go up 10 times. He wouldn't even know the difference, right? So it's not going to impact him, right? The people who are impacted by lower consumer prices are people of moderate income, where a reduction in price has a meaningful impact on their standard of living. So what happens is as labor-saving devices 
bring down the cost of living. It's the lower skilled people that reap the lion's share of the benefit. Now they are going to have other jobs. See, that's the fallacy that, oh, if we eliminate the job of the truck driver, right? If we automate trucks and therefore we no longer need a human being to drive a truck, well, that person is permanently unemployed. They're not. Their labor has been freed up to do something else now that they're not stuck behind a wheel, right? Because now that that car can drive itself and it's more efficient and therefore prices can come down, we have more resources for other things. Look, there is no limit to what people want, right? People want an unlimited amount of stuff, right? You know, everybody wants as much as they can. Uh, needs and desires are not limited. They're constrained by our ability to produce them. And one of the constraining factors is labor. And so the more labor we can free up from doing mundane, repetitive jobs, uh, the more labor that can be freed up uh, to do other things uh, that would require human inter interaction or other creative things or things that the machines can't do, right? Now, what if you say, well, what if the machines can do everything? What if we find a way for machines to do everything? Well, then great. Well, then humans would never have to work. Wouldn't that be a paradise if everybody had a machine? I mean, think about it this way. Put the machine in your own hands, right? What if uh, a worker could send a machine to the office to do his job, a robot, right? What if I had a robot that looked exactly like me, right? And I had a job, right? And I could just send my robot uh, to do my job and I would just collect the paycheck and do none of the work. My robot would just go to work because he, you know, he's a robot, doesn't have any feelings, doesn't need any, you know, he just does all my job. And my boss doesn't even know it's a robot, right? I mean, so the robot put me out of work, but I'm not, I mean, I'm better off. I'm not working, but I'm getting all the money. It's the same thing. If human beings, if no human beings had to do anything because all of our desires could be satisfied by machines, well then, I mean, we'd be better off, right? We'd be, we'd be in paradise. Nobody would, we could all just do uh, what we enjoy, but we're never gonna reach that state because there's always gonna be something else. There's always gonna be something that the machines can't do uh, that people then do. And, and so people will just move into that occupation. Because, right? you know, there were people that were talking about automation from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Oh, these machines are going to put people out of work. The middle class was created by the Industrial Revolution. The people that everybody were worried were going to be put out of work benefited the most from the increased productivity. Now, there were jobs that were destroyed, jobs that we didn't want. Child labor was destroyed by the productivity of machines. Initially, children had to work because otherwise their parents couldn't feed them. But their parents became more productive because of machines and their kids didn't have to work. The same thing happened to a large extent with women. Women didn't have to work either outside the home because their husbands were uh, productive enough that they could support them. Uh, and, and the work week, I mean, does, do people want a longer work week or a shorter work week, right? The people look forward to the weekends. Right. It's thank God it's Friday, not thank God it's Monday. So if we become more productive, maybe we have fewer days in the work week. Maybe we have four days or three days. You know, when I was a kid, I used to watch this show, The, the Jetsons, a Hanna-Barbera. It's like the Flintstones, only in the future. And the show was from the 1960s. And so the people who were writing it just assumed that the trends that existed back then would just perpetuate into the future. 
So in the future, George, who was the husband, he had a job. Jane, his wife, didn't work, right? Like, because women didn't work back then. So she stayed home with the kids. But George, he only worked like, I think, three days a week. Because he said, you know, these three-day work weeks are killing me. That was one of the jokes. And he, would, and he worked a couple of days and he would complain. He would say, ah, oh, you know, my, my button finger, my button pushing finger is killing me. I had to push the button three days, three times today, right? So basically they assumed that businesses were going to continue to be as productive in the future as they had been in the past, right? And he worked for this company, uh, Spacely Sprockets. Like a sprocket was like a widget, but they made sprockets. Uh, but um, they just extrapolated that. And so, you know, in the future, people worked a lot less because machines did the work for us. We became more productive as a result of automation. So that is the reality. Automation is a good thing. Productivity is a good thing. But you always have fear mongers in government that are trying to scare people into believing that they have something to fear. And of course, yes, in the very short run, if a machine puts a trucker out of work, it is a temporary problem for that individual. But hey, that's life. People have to roll with the punches and get over that problem. But collectively, we all benefit and that individual will benefit. In fact, a lot of truckers, right? A lot of truckers own their own trucks. And the minute they can automate, they can buy more trucks and they can make even more money managing a fleet of automated trucks than they could when they were driving their own truck. Next question. Um, I believe we are in a dead cat bounce right now and the real crash is yet to come. Will the rail crash take down precious metal mining stocks? No, the real crash that I'm talking about, right, which is the title of my book, right, The Real Crash, has got nothing to do with the stock market. It's a crash of the U.S. economy. It's a crash of the dollar. It's a crash of the bond market, right? When this whole house of cards comes crashing down, gold is going to soar, right? So gold stocks are going to go along for the ride. In fact, they're going to be in for a bigger ride. So when the real crash finally comes, that's when I think the people who have been following my advice finally clean up. Uh, last question, what's the best way to bet on oil uh, besides U.S.? So obviously, look, if you want to bet on oil, you can buy some of the big oil stocks, right? I think a lot of these major oil companies are at very attractive prices right now. As I've been saying, I don't expect this oil sale to last permanently. It's going to last for a little while. During this time, a lot of the marginal companies are going to go bankrupt. A lot of the U.S. shale producers are going to go bankrupt. Uh, they were the marginal producers, the high cost producers. They won't be there the next bull market. And that means oil prices are going to go a lot higher. And that means the companies that survive to, to, to see the next bull market who make it through the bear market are going to make even more money when oil prices end up going even higher since there are fewer players in the game. So yeah, I like the stocks. In the meantime, these companies pay very good dividends. Some of these dividends have been cut recently and they're still pretty high even after they've been cut. But once the price of oil goes back up, they'll be able to restore those dividends. So if you buy them now at the current prices, by the time they're able to raise their dividends back up, then you're going to have a fantastic yield. And I think that yield will ultimately be a good inflation hedge uh, because as oil prices rise, they can increase uh, the dividends that they pay you. Mm -hmm.